This podcast episode was made possible in part with support from Sacred Rights, a Henry Luce Foundation-funded project hosted by Northeastern University that promotes public scholarship on religion. I highly recommend you learn more about Sacred Rights on their website, sacred-rights.org, that's W-R-I-T-E-S, or find Sacred Rights on Twitter at sacred underscore rights. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. As a high school teacher, one of my favorite topics to explore with my students involves how religious diversity, practice, and expression is and is not embraced in countries around the world. A topic of conversation that appeared regularly as my students explored current events in religion, particularly during our unit on Islam, was the topic of Muslim women's fashion, where we would explore how those fashion choices varied across Muslim-majority nations. We would also explore regulations of fashion and clothing. A curious observation my students would often make involved the French government's close and regular interest in regulating what Muslim women wore in public. The topic garnered no shortage of attention with my students, and I'm delighted to talk more in depth about that topic on this episode with my guest. Sahar Ahmed is a PhD candidate in the School of Law at Trinity College Dublin. Her research examines and offers a reinterpretation of the right to freedom of religion under international human rights law and Islamic jurisprudence. Sahar is from Lahore, Pakistan where she worked as a barrister for many years and has also lived and worked in the UK and Ireland where she is currently finishing her dissertation. The topic of conversation on this episode is France's Anti-Separatism Act and its impact on hijab-wearing Muslim women. You can find Sahar Ahmed on Twitter at SaharIsRight and you can find me on Twitter at Classical underscore Ideas. So without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Sahar Ahmed. Sahar Ahmed, welcome to Classical Ideas. Hi, thank you so much for having me, Greg. I am so delighted to have you on Classical Ideas for the new Sacred Rights season that uh, that I'm working on and you're appearing on. And so I wonder if we could start off by just having you introduce yourself to the audience just a little bit, however you see fit. Yeah, sure. Um, so yeah, like, like as you said, I am one of the new cohort on Sacred Rights, which has been a blast so far. So mm. I'm very excited to be at the tail end of it now with, with you, uh, trying to tie it all up. Um, I am currently doing a PhD, not for very long, hopefully all fingers and toes crossed, uh, but at the School of Law in Trinity College, Dublin in Ireland. Fabulous. Um, and uh, and so I'm a lawyer by training and now hopefully will be an academic at some point soon. Wonderful. Do you plan to stay in Ireland after the convocation of the PhD? I have to because I'm marrying an Irishman very soon. So well, congratulations. <laughs> Thank you very much. Fabulous. Fabulous. Well, um, so I was reading some of your your bio and information 
And so I know you're a barrister or a lawyer by training, and which is a terminology that maybe some people in the U.S. aren't familiar with as well. Um, but that makes you an interesting person to have on this particular show since you are, are in the legal world, but you're not like a necessarily a religious studies person per okay. se, which I really enjoyed about your bio and your information is that you're on this like work that runs parallel to a lot of the other stuff that I do on this show. So it's really cool because I feel like I'm stepping outside of my little circle um, for the show that we're doing together. But something that's really fascinating about your work that I was learning about is that you work very closely with international human rights law and Islamic jurisprudence. Yes. And so before we get into those two terms, I want to know how you got interested in religion as part of your legal training, because then we'll, we'll then we'll tie some threads together here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's a bit of stepping out of my comfort zone for me as well when I talk to people from religious studies, because I'm just so used to the legal world. So mm -hmm. um, so that makes two of us, Greg. Um, but um, but yeah, um, I think my interest in religion as a part of my legal practice was there right from the start, which has almost entirely everything to do with my personal circumstances. Um, I am a religious minority in Pakistan as well. And so growing up uh, under a very specific kind of persecution that comes from the state in terms of laws on the basis of faith, sort of obviously always had my brain ticking in terms of if this is the path I'm going down, if law is the, is the route I'm going to take for my profession, then I can't sort of leave behind my identity. And sort of it sort of framed um, my entire legal education um, across the continents that I've been in. Um, and so that's that's essentially where I think the interest came from. And then, of course, I started studying it and my mind blew and I was like, this is amazing. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. I mean, so I'm just a, I'm a high school teacher. And whenever I got into the field of teaching about world religions in my own high school, I was like, wow, this is never going to be boring ever. Yeah. This is this is going to be rewarding and fulfilling forever. And I, I knew it right away. So I'm glad Absolutely. that you kind of had a similar kind of experience coming at it from a different profession and then realizing that the niche of the content was just so expansive that you could learn forever. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. I love it. Well, I want to define two terms to frame our conversation before we dive into a little bit more of your backstory. I want to know about international human rights law, and I want to know about Islamic jurisprudence. So I'm wondering if you can take those one at a time for the listeners. Yeah, of course. Absolutely. So international human rights law, to understand what that term is, I think it's just important to go back to the root and just understand what human rights are. And it sounds quite simplistic to say, well, human rights are the rights of humans, but that is essentially exactly what they are. It means the rights of all humans uh, in full equality, right? That we are all entitled to them simply by virtue of being alive as human beings. Mm -hmm. And so the international human rights regime or the international human rights legal regime sort of stems from this idea. I mean, as someone who works in religious studies, you'd know human rights are ideas rooted in antiquity. We've had them forever in different formats and different uh, methodologies that come about in our study. But international human rights law 
is very much a modern byproduct of this, the First and Second World War. So it was during the period between the two wars that we saw the League of Nations, which is the predecessor of the current United Nations, get formed. And all these countries come together and talk about, oh my God, we can't have these atrocities happen again. So we need some sort of a codification, some sort of law to prevent this from happening. And that's essentially where international human rights law came about. So when we talk about at the moment when we talk in public discourse or in just, you know, in our drawing rooms, when we talk about the United Nations, when we talk about, you know, oh, the, uh, my human rights say this according to the UN or my human rights say that according to the European Union, hypothetically. Mm-hmm. That's what the international human rights law means. It, it's the codification of a lot of states internationally coming together to put it down on paper that these human rights and violations of them are against the law. Excellent. Okay. Yeah. So that's what international human rights law means. Um, But coming to the second one you asked about, Greg, Islamic jurisprudence. Um, Islamic jurisprudence is literally just the collection of Islamic sources and their analyses and interpretations that have happened throughout the centuries by jurists, by legal scholars, Islamic legal scholars, and um, and, and Islamic uh, theologians and uh, scholars. But what's interesting is every time I'm asked this question, I'm always asked, well, why don't you just say Sharia law then? Or why don't you just use the word Sharia? And I think that distinction for me in my work is very important that I that I'm not talking about Sharia, i.e. like divine law. I'm not Mm -hmm. talking about law that God has has sent down to the earth for people to follow. I'm very much talking about men primarily Mm. (laughs) sitting down and analyzing scripture and coming out with opinions and analyses of what that scripture says. And so that is what I mean when I look at Islamic jurisprudence and um, and the work I do around it. I love that distinction, too, because that really would have been an immediate follow up question for me. And I'm sure you've heard it a million times. So I was going to fall right into your trap there and it was going to be really <laughs> hilarious. So you sort of cut me off at the pass and now we can have this fun joke about it. You know what I mean? <laughs> I'm glad I, I am. You're right. I'm so used to it. So I can preempt it immediately now. <laughs> I love it. Well, I want to go backwards a bit. I'm always curious about people who come on the show. I'm curious about their backstory because I value your expertise in this content. And I'm always curious how you came to have your areas of expertise, the path towards your expertise, and maybe some important turning points along the way as far as like inspirations or important people or important moments. And so I'm wondering if we can trace your academic path a little bit and discuss some of these notable turning points in your journey. Uh, And maybe we could start with Lahore. Is that a good starting point to start with? That's a perfect starting point because that's where I'm from. I would love to know about Lahore, law school, practice there, things like that. Yeah. So um, I am from Lahore. I was born and bred there. And um, I went to school there, did my entire education there till I finished law school. And it was amazing. It was fantastic. Um, we have a we have a British education system, primarily in uh, like sort of remnants of colonialism. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I did the British system of O-levels and A-levels. And then it just made sense for me to do 
law in the same system as well. So I did the University of London's um, international program. They have a fantastic program where you can do it sitting in Pakistan and you you do the same degree that wow. people in London do. Oh yeah, it's brilliant. Um, and I had a lot of support because we do have universities and colleges within Pakistan who are within that infrastructure. So I was able to do a fantastic world-class law degree um, but without paying London rents, which is brilliant. <laughs> I, was, I was at oh, home. Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so so I did that. And then I just thought, well, you know what? Um, I need to, and I want to practice. I, I didn't have any doubt in my mind. I was always, always this precocious and child who was always told as a, do you know when kids are like very talkative, kids, parents <laughs> are always like, oh, this this one will be a lawyer. And I was yeah, like, yeah. I, will, I will take that and I will yeah. run with it. Thank you yeah. very much. <laughs> I had the same thing. Greg, you're going to be such a good teacher someday. And I was told that my whole life. So it's almost like my destiny was laid out before me, like totally against my will. Does that make this sense? This is it. Yeah, this is it. I was, I was like, you said, you all said it so many times. I didn't have a choice left at all. Exactly. Anymore. Yes, exactly. That's how I feel too about my life. Oh my gosh. Okay. Sorry. Go ahead. No. So, so, you know, I just thought, okay, I'm going to practice. I'll go to courts. I'll do this, but I needed to qualify as a barrister first mm-hmm. um, to be able to do that. And that when I actually moved to London before I started practicing in Pakistan. So I moved to London, qualified for the bar there. You know, I know you said terms might be a little confusing for some of your audience. So um, a barrister is the, 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 the lawyer who goes to court, presents themselves in front of a judge um, gotcha. in, in, the, in a lot of the Commonwealth systems. So Pakistan, um, India, the UK, Canada Perfect. have very similar systems. Yeah. So I qualified and I came back and then I started working as a, as a, as a barrister in Pakistan, which I did for many years. And it was a lot, it was grueling. <laughs> it mm-hmm. was exhausting. Um, so, so yeah, it was, it was an interesting experience. I learned a lot from it, but I think I'm done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think, I think in fairness, I'm done with the bar for the time being. Um, I just, I, I, it's very tough being a woman in that in that field um, and in that space. And I think I, I did my I did what I could for the time right. that I had. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, when you were in, have, have you done two stints in London then? Because I know that you worked for Amnesty International as well in the UK. And I'm wondering yeah. if you if you went back to the UK or if that was all along that same path. No, that same I, I, yeah, no, I went back, Greg. You're right. There was a lot of back and forth for a long time in my life so I went so when I qualified for the bar in London I went back to Pakistan worked there for many years and then went back to London to do a master's and that's when I also worked at Amnesty during that time so I did do two stints in London and now I'm in Ireland so (laughs) a lot of globetrotting Wonderful. What brought you to Trinity specifically? Was it the interest in law and then your interest specifically within the religions content that you're interested as well? Was that what brought you there? To be very honest, no. What brought me here was funding. (laughs) (laughs) Which I'm sure a lot of your audience will be familiar with. Of course. We talk about it all the time on the show. Exactly. So like it was funding, it was a fully funded program. And I thought, yep, that makes sense. Um, It's also so similar to the British system um, in terms of both education and the law. So it it felt very comfortable in that sense for me that if I am going to go to a place that's not Pakistan or the UK, this makes sense. Um, It's not something that I will have to 
spend years familiarizing myself with the system with. I, I can, of course, there's a learning curve. Of course, I'll have to learn new things, but I can just Im- go and immerse myself in both the education and the legal culture without too much, too many growing pains. Yeah. Um, so, so it made sense in that sense. When the funding came along, I thought this is a good idea. Let's go. So, you know, something I always love asking the Sacred Rights cohort training members is what types of new skills do you feel like you are gaining from doing this particular training that they are so, so good at? Yeah, Sacred Rights has been fantastic. So one of the things that I've learned is resilience. Um, You'd think I had the resilience, but like I was trying to build on it because the PhD is grueling, but I feel like they have really, the training has really pushed me outside my comfort zone, um, forced me to do things I don't want to do, mm-hmm. uh, you know, forced me to understand the importance of things that I don't want to understand, frankly mm-hmm. speaking. Um, um, you know, there's so much emphasis on communication with, with the, the purposes of building our own, you know, identity as public scholars. And I was terrified of that. Absolutely. The idea of pitching to editors or trying to speak to people about, you know, please read my work. It's good. I promise it's good. I am of value. Mm -hmm. Uh, was a terrifying prospect and they've really helped make me gain confidence to do that. I'm still terrified at the prospect of doing it, but at least I, I feel like I have the skills and the tools required to do it now. Um, So that's been absolutely brilliant for me. I absolutely love the fact that the program encourages you to recognize yourself as a person who has a specific skill set and a specific knowledge set and a specific expertise that then that you are able to be more out in the world talking to people of all professions and explaining to people of all professions why the work that you do matters and why what you know about is important to the world here and now. Well, let's get into some of these topics because I'm so fascinated by your areas of interest. And so when I was a high school teacher, I I was having a lot of flashbacks reading your work because as a high school teacher, my students and I often study things like religious dress and wardrobes. We also often look at government policies in countries that say they are very free or whatever, but then tend to have some contradictions within those places. So your work really hit on a sweet spot that I always try to touch on with my own students. So we talked about like government policies that regulated what people could or couldn't wear. And my students are always really fascinated by the example of France in particular, France from the, you know, from the greater world perspective looks like such a, it has a generous healthcare system. It has generous social safety programs, excellent uh, maternity and family leave for family building. And so from the outside, what looks to be a very progressive worldview, it has these extremely specific policies regarding Islam and women's clothing. And so I'm wondering if you can tell me what captured your attention originally on European nations starting to pay attention and pass policies in relation to what Muslim women could and could not do in public places. What caught your attention on this issue? Yeah, so that's, I mean, France is 
is an interesting is interesting country for everyone who studies this. I think your students are not alone in being confused by yes. this weird space that France occupies in in the world. For me, honestly, Greg, it was living here. You know, being a Muslim woman living in Europe um, while these policies were coming out. So. The years I moved to the United Kingdom, very much still at that time a part of Europe, um, uh, in, two th- in, in, t- in 2010. <laughs> and that's when everything was kicking off, right? Like things had been happening for a while, but it was really in those years that there was a lot of conversation around Muslims in the public sphere. Um, it was it was in 2011, I was living in London. I remember so vividly when Osama bin Laden was killed. And, you know, this is what was happening in the world stage. And it became impossible for me as a brown racialized Muslim woman living in London at the time to ignore these policies that were being put in place around Europe um, in countries that were, you know, a half hour train ride away or or you know that we are supposed to have freedom of movement with and 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 it boggled me it completely surprised me and another aspect of it that really caught my attention and I think was really the turning point for the discomfort that I was feeling with this was I mentioned earlier that in Pakistan I am a religious minority so I belong to this the sect the Ahmadiyya Muslims and a lot of Ahmadiyyas have left Pakistan, fleed it because of persecution, and have settled in Europe, across European countries, without generalizing too much, but a lot of Ahmadiyya women wear headscarves and mm. wear hijabs and cover themselves modestly. And the idea that, oh my goodness, I belong to a people who have left a space because of persecution and have found safety in these other countries but will now be targeted once again for their outward physical appearance and manifestations of faith, just started sitting very uncomfortably for me. I I saw myself as occupying an interesting and unique dual position there. Um, I could see it not just as 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 a resident of Europe, but I could see it as someone who comes from a place where people have had to leave because of, of oppression and religious bias and discrimination and so for me that's when the discomfort started setting in it became it impossible for me to to ignore really you know um and to to turn away from what was happening it was in the news all the time mm. um, and 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 as we all know it's things that kick off on the ground to start happening on national stages very soon very quickly yeah. I'm wondering if you noticed any acknowledgement of these contradictions. Like early on, were, were these countries like, yeah, we're passing this and we know that these people are coming from places where they may experience oppression, but we're okay with doing what we're doing. Does that, do you know what I mean? Yeah, there was no acknowledgement. I think the anti-refugee and anti-asylum seeker anti-migrant sentiment across Europe for the last two decades has been so strong that 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 that's almost seen as a problem it's 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 it ha- it's it's what has fueled these policies in fact you know um i always have someone french in my in my in my mentions in my dms or somewhere telling me off for saying it but it really like these policies are stemming from racist islamophobic ideas um which have been fueled by migration and by refugees coming in so you know, um, people don't like it, but it is what it is. We have yeah. to call a spade a spade, you know? 
Exactly. Yeah. Um, well, I wonder about the timeline about this as well, because this is not new. Um, so I read your article. It's called Privacy at the Margins, France's new ban on the hijab, which mentions several specific years, 2004, 2010, and 2021 as being important dates. And I'm wondering if you can give us a small overview of this issue, specifically within France, about these uh, these crucial turning points and what was going on in each of them. Absolutely. So 2004 was mentioned because it was the seminal year where veils were banned in French public schools. That was the first time that had happened. Before 2004, there were always guidances. There were always guidelines and suggestions to schools to say that students should not be allowed to wear veils, headscarves, etc., in public schools, but it was never the law. And so in 2004 was the first time that there was any codification of something like this in, in national legislation. So which is why 2004 was so important. Um, but it just sort of ramped up and 2010 then once again became a really important year because that is when face coverings or niqabs, as they're called, were banned in public spaces. And that's when the conversation around, I'm sure you remember conversations around burkinis on the beach came yeah. up and, and you know, women being fined on walking down the street wearing a niqab came up. They, they were very visual um, instances that followed 2010. And it, it, it followed France being taken to the European Court of Human Rights also for these um, for these laws, which were all upheld by the European Court because it was all in terms of, you know, this is national, um, this is this is France's problem. It's their internal business and they know what they're doing. They know what's best for themselves and their people. And, um, and so that's why 2010, I think, was also a very important point because some of the most landmark cases that came out of the European Court were as a result of the 2010 law. Uh, which banned um, veils in public space, veils and face coverings in public spaces. 2021 has been interesting because it's happened in the middle of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. right? um, it's happened in the middle of while people are actively being told to cover their faces. <laughs> so the, the, the hypocrisy and the double standards are very evident and very obvious. But 2021 has been the culmination of something that's been happening for a long time. So this was the anti-separatism bill, as it was called. And the terminology itself is uh, is not is, is a little uncomfortable, uh, anti-separatism. And the reason why it's called that is because the narrative in France has been for the longest time now that these people, i.e. Muslims, are this separate category of people they like to be separate. They don't integrate. They're not one of us. And we don't like it. That threatens our secularity. That threatens the Republic. And that we can't, we can't have. We have to challenge it. And so that is when this anti-separatism bill, really, it's it, it, it had been in the works for a long time. But then in December, there was a very high profile murder of a school teacher in France. Um, um, the year before and I think that sort of like ramped up the the, the passing of this bill and when I actually wrote this um, article along with Dr. Roisin Costello um, it was at the stage where it had only been passed by the Senate so France also has a dual legislative system the Senate and the National Assembly and at that point it had just been passed by the Senate it hadn't been passed by the National Assembly it has now it has now been passed as of last month. It has been passed by the National Assembly. 
a few amendments haven't made it. So thank the Lord that the 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 amendment about um, banning headscarves on minors uh, in public has not passed. That amendment hasn't passed. That was one of our big concerns when we wrote this article, that because that had been tabled and there was very serious discussion, the Senate had passed it, and there was very serious discussion that this will pass in the National Assembly as well. Mm. It hasn't, luckily. But other things that have passed in the last month are equally problematic and equally difficult. One of the big things that is affecting French Muslim women at the moment is that homeschooling has been banned now. So we already saw in 2004 that veils in public schools were banned. So what a lot of very devout uh, Muslim girls and parents of girls started doing was homeschooling their girls because it was better than you know, the, the alternative was there was a lot of conversation about this where we don't, the girls don't want to go to school to have to take their hijabs off. What do they do? We'll homeschool them. That's fine. Not an issue. That's not allowed anymore. Mm. So effectively, what is being done for school going girls is you either go to school and take the hijab off or you don't go to school, but you can't not go to school because that's the law. You have to go to school. So there really isn't any option left. Private schools have been targeted by the anti-separatism bill as well. So Islamic private schools can no longer function. Hmm. And um, and so we're really left with a position where there is no alternative left anymore. So yes, while it's a small win that the amendment on under 18s being banned from wearing the hijab in public spaces didn't go through, um, in the larger grand scheme of things, we're still seeing an absolute marginalization of uh, women and Muslim girls in France at the moment, and and they're specifically their right to education. Mm. Who are some of the main figures in France in the Senate National Assembly who are spearheading these movements? Who are some important figures that people should know about to keep on their mm. radar? Yeah, I mean, one of the most important ones is Macron, the president. Um, um, he came in power as quite a centrist person and has since moved very far right, to be honest. Um, ironically, and I found this fascinating when following the debate, um, which I have to admit, I must admit my downfall, I don't speak French or understand it. So I was following it through translations, mm -hmm. um, which is one of the big, um, which is always one of the big attacks that that people like me or uh, who are working on this issue get is that you don't speak the language, you miss some of the nuances on translation. But what we always say is it's hard to miss the nuances when it's so black letter clearly written out, right? There's not much to miss out on it. Um, but when I was following the debates uh, that were happening, one thing that was really fascinating was both the left, the, the far left and the far right parties were both against this bill being passed, mm. which was fascinating because we hear Marine Le Pen all the time in the news as like this figure, this far right figure who's anti-Muslim, who's anti-refugee, who's you know, anti-Europe, et cetera. And she abstained from voting on it. Um, and so did a lot of other hard, far-right hardliners. So it's an odd place to be. Um, we've simultaneously got people on the left worried about this and the impacts it very obviously will have on Muslim French populations. France has the largest Muslim population in Europe. Um, and But you also have people on the far right being very concerned that what this will embolden people to do mm -hmm. um, and, and how much more 
violence could potentially come out of it. I'm wondering how the policies are actually being enforced or policed. Like, how are the consequences playing out on the ground for the people whom these policies regulate? Like, I'm curious about like walking down the street, a normal person, you know, a Muslim woman, um, are, what kind of po- uh, penalties are there? Are they financial, emotional, spiritual, all of the above? What are, what are, what is happening with regards to these blanket bans? Yeah, so we've already seen them come in place, actually. We've already seen uh, the private schools that I was talking about, for example, we've already seen them be closed down within a, within a, within a few weeks of the law being passed. Mm-hmm. We've already seen Muslim and Islamic-run NGOs being shut down within a few weeks of the laws being passed. We've One of the stipulations of the anti-separatism bill was um, that Muslim women in performing public services in the private sector also cannot wear any overt religious symbols. So that means teachers in private school as well, for example, um, or, you know, any any public service that can be performed by a private enterprise. That's already been put in place. Women are being told actively at the moment that they need to either take their hijabs off or they will be fired. Um, And because they're not state employees, they don't have the kind of protections that a state employee would have. They're in private private businesses. They're they're working for private companies, et cetera. Um, And so we've already seen these happen. We've already seen, um, there was a large campaign actually that's been collating um, the impact that's been having specifically on French Muslim women called hashtag hands off my hijab. And they have for the last few months and very actively now been putting together and collecting um, testimony from women across the country um, to to, to highlight the kind of impact that it's having on them. Um, Because as you said, you very rightly asked, the emotional, the spiritual, yes, there are fines as well in place, but it's much more than that, right? It's it's the it's the marginalization that you are no longer welcome in the public the public sphere of life as a French citizen if you choose to manifest your faith in a certain way. Yeah, and 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 and, and the impact that has on emotionally on your idea of citizenship, on your idea of personhood, right? Um, on your idea of uh, being a being a resident of the place, and so though all of those things are caught in question, and you have and you have young girls being forced to make decisions like whether they should continue to manifest what they think is an integral part of worship for them or go to school. That's an unfair position to be putting 15, 16 year olds in, mm-hmm. um, and and their parents as well. So really, the the cost is far higher than any fine could really be. Yeah, especially in a country that is so very much about presenting itself as being a free society. Yeah, absolutely. This this um, this dichotomy of France has always captured my interest uh, uh, very much. So um, I remember this is entirely anecdotal, but I remember so clearly when a friend of mine who uh, wears a niqab um, uh, and you know was planning on going on holiday, and her brand new husband who had never been to Europe before uh, was very keen on going to Paris. You know, grew up hearing of the Eiffel Tower. Uh, it was one of those things where he was like, I can't go to Europe for a holiday and not go to Paris. That's that's absurd. That's unheard of. And, you know, all of us actively trying to explain to them that perhaps don't. Why would you want your, you know, what is ostensibly your honeymoon ruined um, 
by what could potentially happen uh, walking down a street. Um, and, and that's exactly what happened. They decided to chance it because everybody, you know, wow, despite warnings, they had thought, oh, how bad can it be? It's Europe. It's yeah. Europe. It's France. Come on. You know, it's the it's the it's the bastion of freedom and you know the republic, everything it stands for. They had recently seen Les Miserables, and so they were, you know, <laughs> they, they were very keen on on experiencing it. And it was a rude awakening. She was, you know, um, the, you know, she was spoken to by police. They let her go because she was a on holiday, she was a tourist, no one, no one find her. She didn't get into trouble per se, but she had an awful experience and came back crying. And and it's just as as someone who researches and studies this stuff, um, I can't not I can't help but see the human cost of this. Obviously, absolutely, yeah. Is there a ripple effect going out across Europe? Has France's behavior and policymaking emboldened other places to act similarly? I'd say yes. Um, I just by virtue of everything that's been happening across the country, whether uh, across the continent, whether it is directly as a result of France or whether it's a case of that's just the sentiment across the board now. But we've seen very recently, again, in 2021, Switzerland had a referendum um, that 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 banned uh, face coverings in public spaces. And that was a referendum that was by the people they voted mm. and while it was a very narrow margin by which the referendum was passed it still happened um we are seeing just again last month we saw a different court but the european court of justice um gave another judgment that said private employers are within their rights to um ask their employees to take their you know uh, religious uh, coverings head coverings off if they want to, if it if it if it if it hurts their corporate sentiments, whatever you want to call it, um, but 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 we're seeing it across the board. We're seeing, um, we're seeing people, but we're seeing states being emboldened as well because, you know, uh, while we may want to hope and think that these fringe elements don't influence what's happening in government, they do. They absolutely do. Um, and so, yeah, there's there's across across the across Europe, we have instances of referenda. We're seeing court cases come about. We're seeing decisions come out. It's I I think it's hard to pinpoint it whether on France specifically, but it it would be foolish to think that it doesn't have any effect. It's mm -hmm. such a huge player in the geopolitics of this region. It is such an important country in every aspect of Europe. Um, it would be foolish to think it doesn't have a ripple effect across the continent. So something that I know that you care about is disseminating this information to the, the greater public with wider publications, with more, you know, um, like widespread audience publications and things like that. And I'm wondering if you can explain to me why it's important for you that everyday people in our society should know about and care about these topics why should people who are living busy lives care about this topic so something that i've seen right that's such an important question but something that i've noticed is for anglophone countries right those of us who consume english language media mm -hmm. um it's very easy to become complacent and think 
there's such an increase in representation across what we consume of Muslims in the media. We're seeing so many important voices in government. Um, you know, we keep hearing about, you know, Ilhan Umar in the US. We yeah. keep hearing of, all, you know, we, we, we hear about so many people in, in the public eye that it's very easy for us to become complacent and think things are okay right things have to be okay for, for look at them they've reached that state you know they're 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 in they're you know making laws for us they're governing us they're in the media but outside of our bubbles of the of the english language media we consume the things we read there's a very real world outside where other countries where we might not be very familiar with because of language or because of just, you know not having anything to do there um very real consequences of actual state intervention taking place that targets and marginalizes groups of people. And Muslims are one of those people. And Muslim women, by virtue of being further marginalized by gender, are more at risk. Um, when we think of countries like France with colonial histories, when we think of the population, the Muslim populations that exist in countries like France, we're talking about black and brown women, you know. Um, and so we are seeing axes of oppression here that, that we don't get to hear about at all. And which is why it's incredibly important for, for me, who, who has this avenue to tap into different English media, right? I, um, by virtue of having lived in the UK, living in Ireland right now, working with sacred rights in the US, I have this unique position where I can inform and engage the public in, in the language that they understand to inform them of the things that are happening in parts of the world where they wouldn't know. And I do, I, I, I maybe I'm an idealist, maybe it's just naivete, I don't know, but I do think that, the, that once people know, there's an increased, yes, awareness, but there's an increased interest. Um, you can't have an interest and you can't care about something you just don't know about. And so I think that's where the importance of this kind of public scholarship on these kinds of topics is important for me. I um, couldn't agree more. Yeah. What are you working on next for the general public? What, what are some of your goals within the field of public scholarship that you hope to achieve to, um, you know, make sure that this message and information gets out there? I wish I could tell you that I have thought of anything beyond finishing the PhD at this point, Greg, I'll be honest. <laughs> I have blinders on and blinkers on where yeah. I'm just like, this thesis needs to finish and everything yeah. else comes after. But I'd be lying if I said I haven't thought about a little bit about it because there's there's so much untapped potential. Um, something I found very interesting, something I found is I'm obviously focusing on Ireland since I live here at the moment. Ireland knows very little about things happening outside Ireland. <laughs> um, there's there is definitely a certain level of ignorance. There is certainly a certain level of lack of awareness um, of global issues that involve populations that do live within these borders as well. And I think my main interest post PhD will be to engage the Irish public in these conversations, perhaps to, to have more conversations about, well, who are these people who come here um, and who, 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 you know, there's all this anti-Muslim rhetoric we hear about, for example, even in Ireland. 
but who, do, do, does the, does the, the Irish mammy down the road, does she actually know who these people are, right? Yeah. Uh, beyond, the, beyond the strange foreigner with a tan, does she know who they are, right? And I think those are the kinds of conversations I want to be a part of um, and I want to see myself doing. Um, I, I, I'm loath to the idea that scholars, even the public scholarship they need to do has to be high level. Um, I'm loath to that idea. Uh, the engagement needs to be at a very basic level. So if it means having a cup of tea with the old woman down the road to explain to her where Pakistan is on a map, that's fine. I will take that as public scholarship and engagement mm-hmm. for myself. <laughs> I mean, I think that that's awesome because that means that you're going to be fostering relationships on your own street. And honestly, to every person out there, what is more important than the block and the neighborhood and the streets that are in your immediate vicinity? Because that's where real differences can actually take place in your observable life. Absolutely. That's where organizing happens as well, isn't it? Like we've seen it in the last few years, the changes that have been taken to take place, even in the United States. I feel like one of the big things that's happened in the last year with the new with the election has been the organizing on the streets at the very basic levels of talking to your neighbors. And I mean, that's that's kind of where I'm headed with when I think of my future in public scholarship. I love it. Well, Sahara, this has been such a wonderful conversation. I am just delighted by hearing about what you're what you're finding out. Uh, there are several things that I realize that I need to reduce my own complacency on and get re-engaged in some things that I've looked at in the past, but had let lapse in the last couple of years. So you've reminded me of some important contradictions in our societies in the world in places that present themselves outwardly as being progressive, uh, forward, future-looking nations that uh, value uh, internal diversity, but then also their actions that contradict those things are very important as well. And they're kind of staring me in the face right now. So I'm feeling very inspired and I'm going to be following. Yes. And I'm going to be following your work in the future. And I want to know if you can tell everybody else where they can follow your work as well, if they want to see what you get up to in the next couple of years of work. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, That's so heartening. Thank you so much, Greg. Um, You're welcome. Uh, and I hope and I hope that this conversation outside your wheelhouse of religious studies hasn't been too far left for you. Oh, no, out no, of, no. Uh, <laughs> it's perfect. Uh, thanks so much. But yeah, no, if people want to, to find me online and, and, and engage with me, they can find me on Twitter. Um, it's where I live these days. Um, it's uh, and my handle is at Sahar is right. Um, it's just to subvert some ideas. Uh, yeah. the, the short brown girl's always right. So. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much for your time, your energy, your information that you've conveyed here today. And thank you so much for being a part of the 2021 cohort of Sacred Rights, because I learned so much from these conversations and I value my collaborations with all of you very, very much. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me.